0: And thank you so much for joining us here at Quarto KidsCast. I'm your host, Mel Schuett. And today I'm joined by guest Philip Bunting, author of The World's Most Pointless Animals.
1: Each of these creatures, no matter how kind of outwardly odd that they seem to us, they've evolved. Each one has evolved perfectly in tandem with its surroundings to kind of fit an ecological niche.
0: Our planet is full of some pretty weird and wonderful animals. Like, did you know that pandas are born bright pink, deaf, and blind, or that koalas spend up to 18 hours a day asleep? The World's Most Pointless Animals is the perfect guide to some absurdly awesome animals, with funny labeled diagrams and some excellent made-up Latin names that perfectly capture each animal's, well, pointlessness. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Philip Bunting, author of The World's Most Pointless Animals.
1: Hello, my name is Philip Bunting, and I'm the author and illustrator of my new picture book, The World's Most Pointless Animals.
0: Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk about The World's Most Pointless Animals. Can you share in your own words what The World's Most Pointless Animals is about?
1: So thanks for having me, Mel. I'm delighted to be here. And um, I guess with the world's most pointless animals, it's a bit of a a tongue-in-cheek subversive title. But um, despite that, it's really a book about the the joys of diversity, difference, and weirdness. You know, it's it's like a non-fiction book. And it's a roundup of some of, for me, what are Mother Nature's most questionable creations, Um, so back to that point about diversity, difference and weirdness. I think the point of the book is that to highlight the fact that we are all a little bit odd in our own unique ways, but we all have just like the axolotl, our own special little place on the planet. So yeah, the, the world's most pointless animals is, is a book. Uh, Really it's a collection of creatures that might have odd and pointless attributes on the surface, but those are kind of features that have served them well, ultimately from an evolutionary perspective. You know, every animal that has evolved without human intervention that is, has developed in tandem with the world around it to ultimately survive and thrive within their own little ecological niche. So um, yeah, this is, this is a book about those, the more kind of strange and, and seemingly pointless, Creatures that exist out there. So it's a non-fiction book, but it's also one that I hope will make our readers smile. So obviously, linking back to that title, and it's hard to explain in in audio, but the the title of the book is actually the world's most wonderful animals. But on the cover, you'll see that the the world the word wonderful is kind of struck through, and it's replaced with the word pointless. So we have the world's most pointless animals and and that again it's hard to kind of explain over audio but that kind of title structure sets out the narrative structure for the book which is set out in two voices so this being a nonfiction book there's kind of a narrator who speaks quite soberly in fascinating facts about these creatures and the narrator wants to kind of put forward the world's most wonderful animals. But then there's also a second voice, which is set out through the book, um, who's kind of an antagonist, who sees these animals as a little bit weird and a little bit pointless. So the antagonist kind of interjects over the top of the nonfiction stuff to um, add like funnier sides and basically poke fun at all of these creatures.
0: And I love that you pointed out how the the cover on the title, the word wonderful is crossed out and the word pointless appears. And I feel like that combined with the book just goes to show that there really, there's a place for everybody. And there's a, there's a purpose to everybody. And I think that that's very sweet. And I love that it's told through that nonfiction lens.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think like each of these creatures, no matter how kind of outwardly odd that they seem to us they've evolved each one has evolved perfectly in tandem with its surroundings to kind of fit an ecological niche and so yeah I think as a as an analogy for how how we humans are it's you know each each of these creatures has their own little place on the planet and you know so do we.
0: Exactly so how did this book where did you get the idea? How did this book come to life? I'm just picturing you like walking around and then you stumble upon like, what is this animal? It seems like it's pointless. Here's a picture book idea.
1: <laughs> so, so the original idea actually came from a, an incredibly smart publisher over there at Happy Yak, an imprint of Quarto. Um, her name is Rhiannon and she's a bit of a guinea pig enthusiast. So I think the the original spark of the idea came from her playing with her guinea pigs. I did
0: not know <laughs> so that. She and
1: I kind of put our heads together and developed a, a wider concept from the book. Yeah. But um huge credit to to Rihanna over there at, at Happy Yak. <laughs>
0: Just picture her with her little guinea pigs.
1: Yeah, which um is as an aside were, you know, a, a species from the Andes in in South America there. And the native populations around there used to, and I think, still do eat guinea pigs as a as a source of protein. So there's that a little is less
0: funny <laughs> about <laughs> guinea pigs, <laughs> but a good segue. So, how did you choose which animals would be featured in the book?
1: Yeah, so there's heaps, you know, like um, countless species of animals out there, and and when you start to kind of broaden your scope to to species that don't exist anymore I think apparently something like 99.99% of species that ever existed are now extinct so there's you know alongside the millions of species of animal that exist today there are also billions of species that are extinct so really um my kind of criteria for selecting the animals that made it into the book were um a that they had to be a member of the Animalia kingdom, they had to be animals, um, so excluding Venus flytraps and various forms of fungi, etc. Um, <laughs> B, they really had to be alive today. <clears throat> so you know, I wanted to keep the keep the book relevant to creatures that were around today, and see that they had to really fit that narrative structure that um, we were talking about earlier. So, it, just subjectively to me, in the first instance, they had to be both interesting and funny. So each creature kind of required one, at least one knockout fact, but also that they should be out outwardly a bit odd. You know, perhaps they have a strange appearance or they have an incredibly long neck or they have a bizarre behavior. So, um, yeah, they had to be animals had to be alive today and they had to fit in with the, with the dual voice narrative of the book.
0: Was there anybody that you wish had ended up in the book, but there just wasn't space for it?
1: so (laughs) the ones that come to mind were crows tardigrades and humans so i'll go through these briefly Um, but there were i probably had a long list of of about 200 creatures um, and about just under 60 i think made it into the final book but the more the more interesting were um crows which in parts of australia can get highly annoying because of how loud they are they're so loud <laughs> if you have a crow in your neighborhood and you're trying to talk to someone over the phone or on zoom and there's a crow on your roof or on the on the phone wire you can't hear anything else so i wanted to kind of include crows out of spite but crows happen to be one of the most highly intelligent able problem solvers out there in the animal kingdom but also they have such a significant cultural presence in so many cultures around the world that they didn't quite fit in with the pointless narrative. But um, yeah, one of the more interesting that, that kind of was on the cusp of making it in were um, tardigrades. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners would have heard of tardigrades, but um, in case you haven't, these are like, tardigrades are kind of, they're related to anthropods. So they're, you know, relatives of insects, spiders, and crustaceans. And they're tiny little things. They're about the size of a grain of sand or down to microscopic. But what makes them interesting is that they're probably the toughest animals on Earth. So they can survive in deserts, in the Arctic and Antarctic. They can survive being boiled. They can go up to 30 years without food or water. Um, And... They can even live in outer space apparently. So in 2019 from memory a spacecraft crashed into the moon and on board were were thousands of tardigrades which were on their way to an experiment up there on the moon but because the spacecraft crashed these tardigrades are up there on the moon and it's not known whether they're still alive or not but it's it's kind of theorized that these tardigrades are still alive up there. So they're going to try and salvage them one day. So yeah, these tardigrades are fascinating little little creatures. Most of them, despite being such kind of tough little survivors, most like species live in freshwater ponds and streams and in rainforests and mosses, things like that. But yeah, tardigrades, because we feel science feels that we have a lot to learn from tardigrades we kind of ended up chopping them out of this book unfortunately um so they, they were another so tardigrades kind of ended up on the cutting room floor maybe if we create a sequel to this book we might include tardigrades world's in the most
0: Durable animals. I remember that article (laughs) from 2019. tardigrades are fascinating. I guess, though, I think you're right because they are going to be so scientifically helpful that they just can't be considered or categorized as pointless. Pointless. Now, tell me about humans. Humans came to mind immediately for me, so I am excited to hear your take on humans.
1: This is a is a kids book ultimately, and we didn't want to kind of rock the boat too much. But (laughs) of course, um, we're, we're ultimately in the same boat, and we fit that same criteria for selection you know we're animals we're here today and most significantly we're very interesting and and very odd (laughs) so we're not you know and we're from the same place we're all made of the same stuff as as all of the animals in this in this book we evolved just as every single one of these creatures did to to fulfill an ecological niche now um we've we've wandered off that path somewhat in the last few hundred years particularly but um you know, ultimately, we are still wonderful slash pointless animals, just as any of the other creatures in this book are. So um, we, we fit the criteria perfectly. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to stay focused on on the traditional kind of mindset of what is an animal. So yeah, humans didn't quite make it in there.
0: Which I think was probably for the best.
1: (laughs) I didn't want to spark any any kind of anti-Philip bunting groups.
0: Or existential crises, which (laughs) can (laughs) happen. (laughs) Looking for free downloadables to add to your lesson plans? Quarto Kids offers a wealth of teacher guides, activity kits, and educational materials to supplement everything kids are learning, no matter the age range, subject matter, or setting check out our downloadable resource at Quartonose.com forward slash R forward slash educator resources. That's Q-U-A-R-T-O-K-N-O-W-S dot com forward slash R forward slash educator resources. Let's talk about your research process for the book. Let, what, you know, what challenges you encountered and what surprised you the most as you were researching all of these animals?
1: Yeah. So there's three parts there, really. The first would be the process. So the process is quite simple. You know, we're, we're lucky enough to live in an incredible age with access to all of the information that you could ever need. Um, but the, so the process for kind of, choosing the animals started with me just long listing animals from my foggy memory animals that I thought were were interesting or cool or could fit the pointless criteria and then like a a second level of the research to create a long list of around 200 was to scour the trusted books and and particularly documentaries were useful as well you know like decent tier of documentaries such as BBC David Attenborough docos and Nat Geo that kind of level of stuff that helped me kind of Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in an entertaining way find find a long list of around 200 um, creatures which I thought were were applicable to the book but then once the long list is established then whittling down that long list to about 60 you know 60 of the best Um, most interesting creatures was the next phase. And for those final 60 that made it into the book, um, I cross-checked all of the information. You know, there's, as I mentioned, there's kind of at least one knockout fact per creature in this Pointless Animals book. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of those facts were then like fact-checked and cross-checked against really top-tier peer-reviewed journals such as, as Nature or you know, relevant items from from Google Scholar, from the universities and the like. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to be sure that anything that was going into the book was actually in line with current understanding of each creature. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really the process. So just it starts out with me long listing, then kind of delving deeper into into kind of consumer level um, documentaries and books, and then whittling that down to the most interesting 60, and then cross-checking the data I had available against peer-reviewed papers. Um, So really the second part of your question was around the challenge. And I don't know, there's an abundance of creatures, an abundance of information out there really for, for these, for these animals. But um, I think probably my greatest challenge was not going too weird with my selection (laughs) of creatures. So I'd, I'd quite happily go into, you know, the minutiae of zooplankton and various species of strange amphibian and stuff. But um, the, the publishers, Rhiannon and Carly and co over there at Happy App were are very wise and they were keen to ensure that I included a good mix of well-known creatures such as, you know, giraffes, groundhogs and guinea pigs alongside the more odd stuff just to make sure that there was a good interesting balance for a range of ages of readers for this book. So yeah, I think left left to my own devices, I would have gone a bit weird. So the challenge was just staying, staying in that middle zone where we had a good offering of new, but also um, familiar creatures. In terms of the most surprising stuff, which was the third part of your question, was probably the facts you know like that i picked up along the research path so there was there was heaps but one that i found out about when researching penguins that around three percent of antarctic ice is actually penguin pee
0: no (laughs) apparently so
1: so there's probably some kind of more yellowy patches of the antarctic down there (laughs) um uh another one that comes to mind is around the narwhals tusk which you know narwhals are the the unicorn, unicorn of, the, of, the of the sea northern sea yeah yeah <laughs> beautiful creatures and that tusk is actually one elongated left tooth so it kind of protrudes through their upper lip and that that tusk is just a giant elongated tooth so most most narwhals are actually kind of asymmetrical you do occasionally see them with two tusks. And that's when both of those teeth have actually protruded. Wow. Axolotl can actually regrow entire limbs, tails, and even parts of their brain if if they're injured. But um, as well, as cute as they look, those little baby axolotls will eat each other given half a chance. Um, Blobfish can't bench press as they don't have any muscles and dung beetles use the milky way to navigate at night so dung beetles use the strip of light that you see as the milky way to yeah to navigate to find their way around at night which is quite amazing The only known insect to do so quite incredible and they're, yeah. they're kind of they're one of the most kind of diverse species of or subspecies of our groups and families of of insects out there there are well over a thousand sorry i haven't got the information to my hands but there are heaps of different species all around the world um and most exhibit the same behavior quite interesting
0: that is very interesting so you get all this information how do you pare it down because each animal only has one page so how do you take all of this information and pare it down for young readers
1: yeah, well, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there, Mel. Really, the, the the key is kind of surface area. And typically, we've got one page and around 100 words, if we're lucky, to translate this information. So being able to do so really requires it being pared down to that one knockout fact per creature that I mentioned earlier. Um, to, yeah, and... I, I don't know other than that how, how each one was pared down other than to kind of hone, hone each creature down to its one most unique and interesting um, attribute um, while still fitting in that criteria of being both informative and substantive but also you know funny.
0: What makes you love a book?
1: I kind of I'm coming at this through the lens of nonfiction and picture books at the moment just because that's kind of what I've been working on this past year mm-hmm. but um really good nonfiction for me is a, a books that kind of bridge the gap between us and the subject so and in doing so they kind of they give us some sense of of meaning and and connection you know so a lot of nonfiction is quite um It's very informative and, you know, it's full of facts and very interesting, but that's kind of where it stops. So for me, the good nonfiction books, whether they're about animals or geology or space, whatever they're about, they have to connect the reader with some sense of kind of, of meaning in a way or provide perspective or, you know, probably the best example would be, Like Carl Sagan's work, you know, providing connection between people and the universe and space, you know, in in a very kind of humanist way. So what makes me love a book, yeah, are those that kind of bridge that gap between us and the subject and connect us rather than just relaying the facts. For kids in particular, I think probably one of the best devices we have is, is humor. So connecting as I've tried to do with the world's most pointless animals, connecting kids with um, facts about nature, but also then trying to kind of intersperse humor in the delivery. And for me, really, the humor becomes like the the Trojan horse for learning. You know, if you can kind of give that spoonful of sugar, it helps the helps the facts go down. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot more room for humor in, in the delivery of nonfiction books for kids. But otherwise, yeah, I, I love books that, that provide a sense of perspective.
0: I feel like you always remember the the funny facts that you learn. And I mean, you learn, you remember the other facts that you learn too, but there's something about the funny ones that just stick and are worth repeating to other people. And
1: yeah, absolutely. I like that I makes mean, sense. It's, yeah, there's certainly, yeah, you're right. Those, those ones kind of make their way deeper into your into your mind somehow.
0: Well, thank you again so much for taking time to chat with me about what I would say are wonderful animals, but we'll call them pointless animals for the sake of this podcast.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to our chat with Philip Bunting. The World's Most Pointless Animals is available online and in bookstores and libraries worldwide. We'd love to see you subscribe to Quarto Kids Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find all available episodes at anchor.fm/quarto kids cast. And hey, if you're enjoying Quarto Kids Cast, we'd be grateful if you left a review so others can hear about it too. Special thanks to Scott Holmes for our theme music, Steve Roth for his promotional vocal stylings, Philip Bunting for stopping by to talk to us, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.